I want you to take your Bibles this morning, turn to pay uh, to Second uh, Samuel chapter number six this morning. Second Samuel chapter six. I about said a page number. If I was Oliver Green, I would have said turn to page number three hundred and sixty in your Schofield Bible. Amen. But I'm not, so I'll just say turn to Second Samuel chapter six. And uh, wh- how good it is to be in the house of the Lord, man! I'm excited to be here. I mean, God's been so good to me. I don't. Even, I don't even know how to begin to describe all the goodness of God in my life. Just in this week, He's been so precious to me. He's met needs that I didn't even know were coming. Amen. I mean, there's things that that Toby from last Sunday didn't even know he was going to face, but God knew, and God was present there, and God knew what needed to be done, and God met the need before I ever even got there. Amen. He's just. He's been. He's such a precious God. If I could tell you anything, I'd tell you this. Don't leave here without knowing that God. Don't leave here without knowing that God. I mean, He's a precious God. You won't find a better one. There is no other one. But even if there was, you wouldn't find a better one. Amen. What a precious God that He is. Don't leave here without knowing that God. He's so good. Uh, and listen, if He'd be that good to me, imagine how good He'd be to you. Amen. So I encourage you to be sure and leave here knowing, resting in in, in the salvation of the Lord. Second Samuel chapter 6. I'd like to begin reading at verse number 1. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. A little bit of reading this morning from verse 1 down to verse number 23. Bible says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to every one a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, every one to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. And I will yet be more vile than thus, and I will be base in mine own sight. And of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here in this place. Lord, I I rejoice that you brought us, that we might worship together, that we might glean and gain from your word. And Lord, that you might be glorified through our reception of it and through our obedience to it. Now, Lord, I don't know the heart of any person in this room, but you do. There's not a single one of us that can hide from you. God, you know us. You know who we are. You know you know whether we know you and whether we're born again. You know whether we're right with you. You know everything about us. And, Lord, I pray with that knowledge that you'd take the precious word of God and that you would apply it to each and every individual in this place. Let there not be one that could leave here saying they haven't heard from heaven. But God, I pray that you'd work in us that which would bring us most close unto you. Lord, that which would bring us most into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray if there's any that's lost, I pray you'd show them their lost condition and show them that you love them, that you'll save them if they'll come to you. Bless this time together this morning. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we find ourselves looking at the life and a moment in the life of King David over the nation of Israel. David is a complicated person in Scripture. I'll give you something that will help you as you study your Bible. People have always been people. doesn't matter when they've lived. doesn't matter what the context and circumstances of their life. People have always been people. And guess what? People are complicated. And David's life is a complicated Life. It seems to be a life that has many ups and many downs. It seems to be a life where one moment God is doing great things and getting glory out of his life, and the very next moment David is uh, making a serious error and things are falling apart. You know, that's sort of how your life and my life is sometimes. Uh, whether we're living in obedience to God or not is the complete predication, the complete basis on whether God can bless our life and use us. David's life is marked by many great successes. I jotted down a few of them that just came to the top of my mind. I'm sure there's many others that we could catalog, but I thought about the anointing by Samuel. We preached on that just the other day and how that uh, Samuel took the horn of oil. And even when Saul was still presently king, God had turned away from Saul and he anointed the young shepherd boy, David, to be the king of Israel. I thought about the slaying of the giant Goliath and how God wrought a great victory 
on that day. I thought about David's testimony before Saul, a man who hated David, but David behaved himself wisely and God prospered him. I thought about the many military victories that were achieved over his enemies. If you study the life of David, it seems in the early days at least to be just one victory after another as God is vanquishing his foes. I thought about his coronation as the king of Israel. I thought about the conquering and establishing of Jerusalem as the capital. I thought about the building of his palace, the house of David. I thought about his many great diplomatic alliances. We often don't think about that in Scripture. Uh, But with the king of Tyre and with various other great nations that he forged diplomatic allegiances with. I thought, of course, about the pinning of the many psalms in Scripture. I mean, hey, about half of the largest book in the Bible we wouldn't have were it not for David's obedience to God. I thought about his older years and the preparation for an ordering of a fixed place of worship. You know, he spent his last years making sure the house of God was right. Amen. There's a testimony there for you and I. He spent his last years just making sure that everything was was ordered and set in place and that God had everything he needed for worship to commence uh, whenever the temple was built. And then I thought about the establishment of Solomon as his heir. That was not by any uh, measure a fixed matter initially. But David dies. The Bible says he dies in old age. He's full of days about how God had blessed his life. David had many great victories throughout his time of, of life. But then I thought about David's life from another perspective. You know, though it's marked by many great successes, sadly, David's life is also stained by many failures. Uh, we would be doing a great disservice to the inerrancy of Scripture if we ignored the failures in David's life. And you know, David's life is no different than yours or mine. We learn more from the failures than we do from the successes. We learn more from the valleys than we do from the mountaintops. I thought about some of the shameful moments of David's life. I thought of his flight to the Philistines and the burning of Ziklag. He literally is wanting to march against the people of God whom God had anointed him instead to lead. I thought about his endangering and abandoning of the priests at Nob, 84 men that Saul slew or actually Doeg the Edomite slew at Saul's command because David had endangered them and then abandoned them. I thought of course, of his adultery with Bathsheba and the death of the child that was the result of that union. I thought about the assassination of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, and that's exactly what it was. It was an assassination ordered by the hand of David. I thought about the numbering of the people of Israel and the pride of David and the plague that followed. I thought about David's family in his later years, his ignoring of Amnon's sin. Amnon, his son, raped his daughter Tamar, and instead of dealing with that as the father in the home. He just ignored it. As a result of that, his son Absalom kills Amnon and then flees into exile. Whenever David brings Absalom back home, he brings him back to home, but he doesn't bring him back to heart. And for two years, he refuses to see Absalom. And uh, as a result of that, Absalom launches a, a rebellion, a coup attempt against David. And David is forced to flee into exile into the wilderness. The fact is, the sword never departed from David's home because of his sin, and there are many great failures in his life. Here in our text this morning, we find probably one of the most severe of David's failures. We find the matter of the death of Uzzah and the new cart carrying back the ark of God. We'll talk about it in length, but I want you to notice something about our text this morning. You know, there are many of of these failures that we described that there was no way to repair the damage that was done. 
He couldn't undo the adultery with Bathsheba. He couldn't bring Uriah back to life. He couldn't unnumber the people. He couldn't wipe away Amnon's sin. And though David couldn't bring Uzzah back from the dead, we find that though the first portion of our text is devoted to his mistake and his error, the last half of our text is actually devoted to David correcting that error and repairing some of the damage that's done. He couldn't bring Uzzah back from the dead, but David did repair his wrong in the matter of the new car. By the time we get to the end of this passage, David is restored to a right relationship with God. In fact, we could say this, and I want to preach on this thought this morning. In this passage, we see David getting it right. Can I say, hey, listen, we're going to get a lot of things wrong. And there are some things we're going to get wrong that can't be made right. But thank the Lord, there's a lot in our life that we can get right. You may have made mistakes in your life. Don't think you're the first, nor will be the last. And you may say, well, preacher, there's things that I've done that I cannot undo. And that's likely true. It's true of my life. But I'm happy to report to you this morning, there's a great many things, and particularly in the matter of our relationship with God, that you may have messed up, you may have done the wrong thing, you may have made a mess of things, but hey, thank God you can get it right this morning if you're willing to come to the Lord. In this passage, we see David getting it right. And I want you to notice three thoughts this morning that God used in my heart as I read this portion of Scripture. Notice with me, number one this morning, the course of his sin. You know, you really don't know how to get right until you know where you went wrong. You ever found yourself, I I do this sometimes, I'm working on a vehicle or working on an appliance or something. You ever get so lost in the middle of it, you don't know how to get it right because you don't know what went wrong. (laughs) Uh, You don't know what was broke in the beginning and what you've broke in the process of fixing it. Amen. And you know, often in our life, we can't know how to get things right unless we first know how things went wrong. And this passage details for us how things went so wrong in David's life. It goes from him rejoicing to him bitter towards God and to one of his friends dead because of his error. How did this transpire? Notice number one with me this morning, David's commendable purpose. Verse two says this, David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah. Why did he do that? Well, the Bible tells us to bring up thence from thence the ark of God, which is uh, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. I just want you to simply notice before we really get deep into our message that it started off with a noble and honest and sincere and commendable purpose in David's life. You know, sometimes we imagine that deep, dark sins in our life always begin with sinister and nefarious motives. But can I tell you, there's been a great many believers who have been derailed. And in the beginning, in the initial stages of their decision, they had a clean heart. They had an honest desire. They didn't set out to wreck anyone's life. They didn't set out to destroy their home. They didn't set out to throw their kids into hell. They didn't set out to do these things, but somewhere along the line, Things all of a sudden changed. Now you say, well, preacher, what do I do with that? Well, here's what you do with it. You ought to tremble in fear of the fact that even if you have good motives, you can still make a mess of things. It ought to cause you to walk close to God, to live clean before God, to be careful in the will of God. Because you may start off with good motives, but hey, the reality is that good motives don't make a good result and don't make a good end. You may start with a noble purpose and still it all goes sideways. We cannot presume because we've begun well that we must end well. And I'm thankful to report to you this morning, even if we've begun poorly, we can end well. 
But do not, do not presume that just because you had good intentions and, and I, you know, I don't know if I've ever really met, maybe a few, but I've probably not met more than a handful of people who would tell you that they were trying to destroy things when you find them in a pile of destruction. Most people, when you find them and their marriage is shot and their kids are messed up and their life is in pieces and you say, how'd you get here? Most of them would tell you, I never planned on being here. They started off right, but just because you start off right, that does not mean that you cannot go wrong. So here's the question this morning. We see his commendable purpose, but where then did it go wrong? He wants to bring the ark of God up. He wants the presence of God where he is and where his family is. He wants to be close to God. So where did things go wrong? Verse 3 is where they went wrong. The Bible says this, they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament uh, truth concerning how the tabernacle was ordered, you might read that and, and think, well, that's a curious thing. Uh, why is it that it's such a problem that he put it upon a new cart? Let me say that most Christians walking around in the world today can't figure out what the problem with the new cart is. I, and I'm going to, you know, preachers preach this passage and they preach against contemporary Christianity. And, and I'm, I'm doing my best to stay with my, with my message this morning because there's a lot I want to say. Amen. Uh, there's a lot that could be said about this. But suffice it to say there are a great many Christians. They look at the new carts that the world builds and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Why would there be anything wrong with that? And if you're sitting here and reading this this morning, if you're not acquainted with with Old Testament teaching, you might just be thinking, well, yeah, so what? If I was going to haul the ark of, of God, I'd want it to be on a cart, and I wouldn't want it on an old cart or a broke-down cart. I'd want it to be on a new cart. What's the problem with that? But when you study in the Old Testament, you find out the problem exactly. The problem is this. It wasn't the way God ordered for the ark to be moved. Amen. We preached back of this not long ago on the Kohathites whose job it was, sole job it was, to carry the instruments of worship and the ark of God whenever the tabernacle moved. And God has His own reasons for that. We explored some of them. I'll just say this. Uh, you know, uh, men don't go in the ditch as often as carts go in the ditch. Amen? And uh, part of the reason it went into the ditch is because it lost its footing. And men don't lose their footing as easily as a cart would lose its footing. But... Suffice it to say, setting all that aside, there's a very simple reason what David did was a problem. It wasn't what God instructed. See, I don't just see his commendable purpose here. I see very quickly his careless pride. What would make David do this? David knows the Word of God. He goes on, by the way, to set in order much of the worship at the temple. And don't you imagine part of what motivated that was this mistake he made in his youth. He had seen what happens when you depart from God's way of doing things. So why would he do this? I'll tell you why I believe he did it. And you're welcome to disagree with this and be wrong if you want. But my belief is this. He didn't want it dragged in the old way, the boring way. He didn't want it reflecting poorly upon his reign. And he wanted it to be a laudable, notable, and memorable experience when the ark of God was brought in. In other words, he was trying to launder his ministry, launder his reign through the glory of God. I tell you this, hey, God's not going to let you launder anything through his glory. Because his glory ain't about you. His glory is about him. Amen. And I think simply this, he assumed that he knew a better way than God knew. 
He said, well, we don't need those old Kohathites stumbling around with this thing. We'll put it on a new card. It'll be a nice card. It'll be the best card that you've ever seen. And much of Christianity is preoccupied with trying to build bigger and better cards instead of just doing things God's way. And I will say that in your life and in my life, all sin at its very core is an assumption of a better way than God's way. You know, in your life, you say, well, preacher, how did things get so wrong with David? Very simply, when he said this, I know better than God does about this matter. Every time you let sin into your life, you have effectively said, I know better than God knows about this matter. God says, do not do this. It's wrong. It's sin. It'll destroy you. And you say, well, maybe just a little bit, God. Well, maybe it's not that severe, God. Well, it's not really that big of a deal, God. Well, you're not with the times, God, or whatever your excuse may be. But at the core, it is all the same thing. It is reckless. It is dangerous. It is careless pride that makes us say, I know better than God knows. I see his commendable purpose. I see his careless pride. But I'm really interested in verses 4 and 5. The Bible says this, they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. What did David do? Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. Let me tell you something. I don't think there is anything intrinsically wrong with a single thing that's said in verse 5 about David's behavior. Listen, I'm for playing music before the Lord. I'm for doing it on all manner of instruments. I'm I'm for it. I don't have a guitar for wood, but maybe we'll buy one. Amen. I'm for doing it on harps and psalteries and timbrels and uh, timbrels and cornets. And I don't even know what a cornet is. It sounds delicious. Wouldn't it be good? Like, like honey mustard flavored cornets. Doesn't that sound delicious? Amen. Just get, I got, went down to the gas station, bought me a bag of them, them honey mustard flavored cornets. I don't know what a cornet is, but they did and they played it and on cymbals. Amen. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with anything that David does here. You know what the problem is? The problem is this. David is wrong and he's playing music as though he's right. You listening? David is wrong. I understand that in the Old Testament dispensation, believers are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I also understand that the Spirit of God very often, and particularly so in the life of David, would dwell upon a person. And one of the things they often would do when that happened, and David in particular, when he was moved by God, would pick up his harp, would pick up his instruments, and would begin to play before the Lord in the Spirit of God. Why is he doing what he's doing in verse number 5? He wants people to think he's right when he knows he's not. Here in a few minutes, we find him not singing, but sacrificing when God is moving. And I'll tell you this, hey, listen, and I appreciate singers, and I appreciate music, and I pluck around a little bit on stringed instruments myself, and sometimes when people make me, I'll caterwaul and, and, and holler and shout like I'm singing. I'm not opposed to any of those things, but let me tell you this, if it's not done in the Spirit of God, it ain't worth the time it takes to listen to. Uh, God's not interested in it, and we should not be interested in it if God is not interested in it. And we find in this passage there's nothing wrong with what he's doing. Well, let me say it this way. Maybe it'll explain. I see not only his commendable purpose and his careless pride, but I see his carnal performance. Everything he's doing, it ain't in the Spirit. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because the Spirit of God won't bless disobedience. So why is he making such a fuss, such a to-do? Why is he exerting himself in this performance so much? He is flexing. He is projecting. He's trying to make it seem like there's something there that's not there. A great... Oh, my. Come on, preacher. Preach what you're preaching on. Don't preach on that other thing. 
a great amount of Christianity today that is performance oriented. And most Christianity today is performance oriented. And I want you to listen carefully. Listen, a church, a good church don't become a bad church when it hits, you know, 500 members or 1,000 members. And a church that's got, you know, 100 or 200 members ain't a good church because it's got 100 and 200 members. I think we're a lot more preoccupied with what size it is than God is. God's more preoccupied with what sort it is. But I will tell you that many churches devolve into this just sad, carnal talent show of performance-based Christianity. And everything that's done is performance. But it ain't just the singers. It ain't just the musicians. I, listen, I, there's, there's a great many preachers that are performance-based preachers. They've learned what buttons to push. They've learned what phrases to say. They've learned the cadence and the tempo that's needed to drive people up in an emotional fashion. And that's all it is, is a performance to try to make up for something that's not there. And they know it's not there. And often in our life, even as believers, when we begin to stray in our relationship with God, sometimes we'll try to make up for that by doubling down in our service to Him. Sometimes we'll try to double down in our standards concerning Him. Uh, sometimes we will try to double down in our worship of Him. And listen, I, listen, I'm for people serving more, and I'm for people having standards, and I'm for people worshiping. But understand that if any of that's done, that it might be some kind of salve upon a guilty conscience and, and a spirit that's smitten with uh, shame over the fact that we're walking in disobedience to God. We may try uh, best as we can, and we may impress a few people, but I'll tell you who was not impressed with David's performance that day, and it was God in heaven that knew David was wrong. Amen. I'll tell you this, no matter how much you try to flex your Christianity, it does not impress God. God wants to know that your heart is sincere before him, David learned how to be the hypocrite. He learned how to play it well. There's no more dangerous uh, lesson that we learn in life than when we learn the lesson of how to be a hypocrite. I heard a preacher say one time, when we've grown comfortable being a hypocrite, there's nothing to stop us. There's nothing to prevent us on our downward slide and our, 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 our degrading in our walk with the Lord. And when we've got to the place that we've learned how to fake it and we've learned how to put on the smile and put on the mask and, and, and put on the appearance and, and it doesn't concern us anymore what God thinks about it. You say, preacher, do you think David was concerned with what God thought? No, because David knew what God thought. Listen, he's not some poor ignorant lamb that's never been taught what's right and what's wrong. He knows how that ark is to move. He knows how God is to be pleased. He knows what is required. He does not care. All he cares is what people think of him. And so he's completely disregarded the opinion and perspective of God. I see the course of his sin in this passage, but then I want you to notice the cost of his sin because there's always a price tag on, on sin. We live in a day where oftentimes there's a lot of slick marketing goes on in the day that we live in. And uh, But I'll tell you a truism. The old-timers used to say, and it is still true today, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Right. <laughs> a lot of times I'll be talking to people about like technology. So I was talking to a pastor the other day about he was wanting to build a website and he was asking about ours and what we did. And I, but I told him, I said, you need to go on. You need to start your email account, you know, dedicated for your church. You can do church business. I said, it's free. And then I stopped and I said, well, it's not free because ain't nothing free. Amen. Right. That Gmail account ain't free. They're selling your data to who knows who. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> what you bought it with was your privacy, amen? And we're all, I guess, guilty of that. I don't mean that in too cynical a spirit, but just simply to say everything has a cost. And can I tell you this? Sin not only has a cost, it's got a steep cost. And the devil will bury it in the fine print and the user agreements. The devil will bury it in the details where you think it's not there. And he'll put that big old word free, big and bold on the banner of your sin. But at the end of the day, your sin always costs something. David's sin cost him something. What did it cost him? Well, notice verse 6. 
The Bible says this, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Yuza put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. Why did he do that? For the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. This is a fascinating passage. The Bible says the ox shook it. Now, I want to make a passing statement before I make an application here to our message. Why'd those ox turn to the side? One commentator made this statement, said it was likely the reason that ox did that at that threshing floor is because it turned aside to feast on some of the grain that would have been spilled over and left some of the residue that was left there from when they had been threshing. And I'll just simply make this passing statement about church and worship and how we go to church and what is the priority. When we when we try to put the ark of God uh, on a new cart to be pulled by dumb beasts driven by their lustful appetites, we should not be surprised when sooner or later they give way to their hunger instead of holiness and throw the presence of God off to turn aside for some table scraps. And there's many churches today that have done that very thing. They've made their their ministry, uh, you know, a uh, product focus group driven and and people pleasing. And it has no interest in pleasing the Lord. It's all about just finding, uh, sending the surveys out and finding out what people want. And then they're surprised to find out that people don't know what they want. They're surprised to find out people can't agree on what they want. And they're surprised to find out that sometimes what people want changes. And sooner or later, they throw that ark off so that they can chase after something new. I say we need to carry it God's way and do it God's way. And then we don't have to worry about the ark being shook off. Yuza really, and we're all sympathetic, I think, with Yuza in this passage. David certainly is. Yuza undoubtedly did not know that reaching out and touching the ark of God would have slain him. And again, much we could say, no doubt, it dwelling in his home with him and his brother and his father, it had probably become familiar uh, become something that was just part of the furniture. And I'll say there's great danger when the things of God become too familiar to us, become part of the furniture. Sooner or later, the ox shakes, the ark moves, user reaches out, and God strikes him dead. Say, preacher, that's unfair. No, to let him live would have been unfair. God would have struck anybody else dead that had touched the ark. Why would he not struck user dead when user touched the ark? And so he reaches out and he touches the ark. And the Bible says God smote him there for his error and there he died by the ark of God. I want you to notice talking to the cost of, of David's sin. Notice number one about the brother that it, that it cost him. And I say this, our sin doesn't affect only us. There are other people. You know why we're sympathetic to Yuza? Because we think to ourselves, it wasn't his fault. And then we immediately say this, it was David's fault. Say, preacher, why do we say that? Because it's true. David was wrong in putting it on the cart. Yuza was wrong in reaching out and touching it. But I think we can all understand there would have been no occasion for Yuza to make a breach upon God had David not sinned in the first place. We always like to have this, this, this vision, this imagination, this plan for our sins of what it'll touch and where it'll touch and, and, and who it'll affect. But we never stop and think about the sins that our sin leads to. And I don't just mean the sins that you commit that are that are led to by the sins that you've committed. But have you ever stopped and thought about the sins that others commit because of your sin? I'm raising two boys. Well, their mama's raising them. I live with them, though. Amen. And um, I'm having to be constantly present of mind in a way that I should have always been, but probably at one time didn't have to be, of the fact that what I do and the standard I set in my home is going to be the very base level of what my kids grow up with and accept as normal. 
I've often heard people say whenever kids get up older and they begin to rebel, they'll say things like, well, you know, we just we want them to experience the world. We don't want them to just be brainwashed. You know, we, we, we want them uh, to, to know what's out there in the world. Can I tell you this? When you set a low standard in your home, you are deciding for your kids what kind of life they'll live. No one's going to show them a high standard but you. The world will ensure that it shows them low standards. I think about the prodigal son in Luke chapter number 15. You know, dwelling there on the father's home with the, with the highest standards, with the best raising, with, with, with a father who is really an image and figure and type of, of God himself. Somewhere he heard about the far country. Somewhere he heard about the far country. You don't have to expose your kids to the world. The world will find your kids. And when you do not set a high standard, you're not saying I'm not or I'm giving them a choice. You're saying you're not giving them a choice. You are setting a low standard and they will think what is low standards is what's normal. They'll think that's all there is. You make your home like that. Hey, you know, that prodigal knew there was a difference. That prodigal knew. I was preaching on you a second ago. We'll get there. That prodigal knew there was a difference. You know why? Because he had seen something different at daddy's house. Now, if, if daddy's home had been like the far country, he would have had no choice. He would have defaulted to that standard of living because that's all he would have thought there was in the world. He came back home because he knew there was a difference. How did he know there was a difference? Because he had seen something different at daddy's house. The far country will come looking for your kids. By the grace of God, they'll stay home. But whether they do or whether they don't, the only way they'll know there's any life other than the wretchedness that the world peddles to them is having seen it in your life. Listen, at the end of the day, uh, the choices we make affect more than just us. And I'm trying to be present of mind with my kids to recognize that I'm, through my parenting, teaching them possibilities. I'm showing them what kind of life can be lived. I'm not parenting to lower standards. I'm trying to parent, and I don't do it perfectly, and I I wouldn't even say I do it effectively, but I'm trying to parent to higher standards so that they know when the far country comes calling, I don't have to go that way. There's a better way to live. There's a better life to have. There's a better place to be. When David committed his sin, he opened the door for Yuza's sin. When he committed his sin, it was Yuza's choice to reach out and Touch the ark of God and Yuza would have been better off to let it fall than for him to be killed. But certainly he would have never been in this position had David not put him in this position in the first place. I remember a family years ago that was in church here and I remember the, the mother and father, they went through a messy divorce and the mama just went crazy for a little while. Sometimes people go crazy, man. And she just went crazy. She started running around, acting like a teenager, dressing in a way that not even teenagers ought to dress. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, just living wild and everything. And she dragged her teenage daughter out with her. And her teenage daughter, who had been a godly young lady, who I think God had big plans for, wound up out in the world living in sin. And uh, probably six, eight months later, the mama, God smote her heart and she got right. She repented and she got her life right with the Lord. But, you know, the daughter never did. That daughter experienced things that she would have never experienced if her mama hadn't dragged her out into the world in the first place. Your sin affects more than just you. It don't matter. It don't matter if you, if you swear, if you, if you decry, if you, if you plea, if you declare and proclaim that it's your life and it's your sin and it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you say. It is a truism of life that your sin will slay others. I see the brother that it slew. But then look at verse 8 with me. The Bible says this, David was displeased. Now, that's funny. 
What was he mad about? Why was he mad? Well, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Now, this is David's perspective. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day, the breach of Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? You see, here's the truth. He says, God made a breach upon Uzzah. God hadn't made a breach upon Uzzah. The ark didn't reach out a hand and touch Uzzah. Uzzah reached out a hand and touched the ark. Uzzah should have never been that close to the ark. It wasn't, it wasn't God that made a breach on Yuza. It was Yuza that made a breach on God. And really, let's say this, it was David that had made a breach upon Yuza. David had looked at him and said, son, get up on that cart and drive it. And he had put him in that place. David, in the guilt, in the shame of his own decision, instead of humbling himself and repenting and asking God's forgiveness, the Bible says he was afraid of the Lord that day. Now that's interesting. Why would David be afraid of the Lord? He had never been afraid of the Lord before, here's why. Because David knew when he saw Uzzah struck dead that God judges sin. And David had no intention of getting his sin out of his life. David didn't plan on getting it right. You know, the only reason you have to fear God is if you intend to entrench yourself in your sin. If you're ready to ask forgiveness and get it right, man, listen, friend, you ain't got nothing to be afraid of. He'll welcome you with open arms. He'll restore you uh, to full relationship. He'll cleanse your life and He'll bless you. But David knew he wasn't going to get right. So here's what happened. Notice the cost of his sin, the brother it slew. But number two, notice the bitterness that it sowed. Instead of him realizing he had trespassed God, he said, God's trespassed me. Instead of him saying, I've done wrong, I need to get it right, he said, God's done me wrong. And God needs to make it right. And here's what he did. He said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me that day? This was effectively the severance of his daily fellowship with God for the next three months. He said, I'm not going to make it right. God's going to make it right. And, you know, the problem is God wasn't wrong in the first place. If you're waiting for God to apologize, (laughs) or we laugh because we've all been there. If you're waiting for God to apologize, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But he ain't got nothing to apologize over. How do you know, preacher? Because he's God and he's never had anything to apologize over. Instead, it brought bitterness into his life. And when you have sin in your life, it will make you bitter. If you're saved, it will. If you're saved, now I'm not saying all bitterness is the result of some transgression against God. There's times that the hurt that we experience and the way that people treat us, we allow that to become a stumbling block. But I will just tell you this, if you do get sin in your life, it will sour your walk with God. It will make you bitter. It will make you miserable. There's nobody more miserable than Christians out of the will of God. Listen, I I don't like going to church with folks like that. And they probably don't like going to church with me either, but here we are. (laughs) I I, I don't like being around folks that's saved and out of the will of God. They're unhappy, miserable, insufferable people. they got no sense of humor. You don't even know how to talk to them. It's a miserable thing. In your life, I will tell you this, sin will bring bitterness. If you refuse to let go of it, it will bring bitterness. Bitterness is not always some wrong that someone's done to us that we won't let go of. Sometimes bitterness is a wrong that we ourselves have committed that we will not let go of. And here in David's life, I see the bitterness it sowed. But then look at verse 10. The Bible says this, So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, I'll tell you this, I believe it was the will of God that David bring the ark up to Jerusalem. The temple or the tabernacle was, 
was directed at, at Jerusalem at that time. The, the ark was to rest within the tabernacle. We can say with full scriptural authority it wasn't the will of God for it to be in the house of Obed-Edom. It was the will of God for David to bring it to Jerusalem. But because David went about the will of God in the wrong way, in the energy of self, because he committed sin, because he was bitter, because he was angry, because he refused to get it right, I see the blessing that it stole from him. God wanted to bless David's house. You know who Obed-Edom is? This is going to blow your mind. You ready? You know who Obed-Edom is? He's a Gittite. And he's the fellow they brought the ark of God there whenever David sinned. You know what else about him? If you do, I'd love for you to tell me because I don't know anything else about him. That's all we're told about him. He's not an important person other than this moment. There's nothing significant about him. He didn't do anything to deserve this. He didn't do anything to earn this. It's almost outlandish that the presence of God dwelt in the house of this person. But you see, the reality is this. God didn't want it to dwell there. God wanted it to dwell in Jerusalem. God wanted to bless David. God wanted to bless his life. God wanted to bless his marriage. God wanted to bless his home. Don't you wonder if the bitterness in the heart of Michael uh, had began long before this, during this time, when the house of God, when the ark of God should have been in David's uh, location and God maybe would have blessed his marriage and blessed his family and blessed his kids. At this time, several of his boys, they're young. Absalom is the oldest and he'll give David the most trouble in his whole life. But several of them are, are up and, and they, they are aware. They, they know what... Imagine how different his home could have been if he had obeyed God and God had blessed his home. Imagine how different his boys could have been. Imagine how different his marriage could have been. But you see, because he would not do things God's way, he missed God's blessing in his life. I'll tell you this, there's no telling what you'll miss out on if you won't do things God's way. I see the cost of his sin. But I'm glad we don't have to end there. And y'all, listen, the Shoney's ain't going to close. Don't get nervous, amen? I <laughs> I want, I want you to notice in closing, and that don't get excited, that don't mean much. I want you to notice the correcting of his sin. I'm glad it didn't stay there. You remember we started this message, and we ain't preaching about getting it wrong, but we've talked about how he got it wrong. But this message, it ain't about getting it wrong. It's about getting it right. Amen. And what we find is that David, when he sees how God has blessed Obed-Edom, he says, you know, I want that blessing in my life. And in our life, listen, one of, the, one, of the, one of the most fruitful things you'll ever do is desire the blessing of God in your life. I don't want to live a life without God's blessing on me. I don't want to live a life without God's favor. I don't want to live a life without the glory of God resting on my home and my family and my marriage and my kids and my ministry. I want to do it God's way. I've done it my way. I've made a mess of things. I want to do it God's way. How did he get things right? Notice A few uh, thoughts here. Verse 12, the Bible says this. It was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. You know, what's implied there is that there was no blessing on David's home. You know, sometimes in our life, the reason God allows us to suffer is to get our attention, that we might desire Him, that we might thirst after Him, that we might crave Him. I'm not trying to indict anybody this morning. I'm just simply saying, if things are going sideways in your life, you ought to stop and look around and look for God. If you look over and He's sitting right beside next to you, well, just praise God and go on anyway. He's got a plan. But if you look around and you can't see Him anywhere, you ought to stop where you're at and try to find Him and get your life in a right condition with Him. You ought to look around, look for the will of God. And if you're standing right square in the middle of the road, then... uh, 
then you ought to just march on and plow on. But if you look down and realize that somewhere along the line things went sideways, you shouldn't plant your feet there in the hard path. You ought to get back in the row and keep plowing. You ought to get it right. And here's what happens. David, he's suffering. Things are not going well. And then he hears news that down in the house of Obed-Edom, man, they're having church. I mean, God's moving. God's blessing. I mean, his crops are thriving. His kids are getting fat. His wife's getting prettier. Everything is going well for him. And he says, I want that. I want that. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, it's the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. And, you know, I will say this. When I got saved, I was scared of hell. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm not part of this highbrow crowd that thinks everybody has to be theologically convinced. I, I think it's enough to be an old broken sinner who's just scared of dying and going to hell. Because that's who I was. I was just scared of going to hell and didn't want to go there. But I'll tell you this, I would have never come to God if I hadn't believed He was good. I, if I had thought I was going to come to Him and He would strike me down as I deserved, I would have never gone to Him in the first place. And we find in David's life, it wasn't the severity of God that drew him back. He had tasted the severity of God whenever he saw Yuza struck dead, but it was the goodness of God. And he said, I, I don't want to live a life without God's blessing. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. Let me say number one here, we see his repentance. You know what that is? That's repentance. He had said, I'm not bringing the house, the ark of God up to, up to the house. Now he says, I will bring the ark of God up to the house. He had been bitter and angry and, and, and mad at God. Now he says, I'll do it with joy and I'll do it with gladness. We'll see here in just a moment. Before he had said, I'll do it my way and I'll build a new cart. But now he says, let's put it on the shoulders of the Kohathites. You see, here's the truth. I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day that we were talking about repentance. Repentance is an attitude of the heart, but it does produce a, a, a corresponding behavior. Just like faith is an attitude of the heart. It's, it's not a work. But faith, uh, that works, is biblical faith. It will produce a response in your life and repentance likewise. What do we see here? We see the first thing he did is found where he went wrong and worked to get it right. He made up his mind that it was him that was wrong. That he, If he was waiting around for God to apologize, it wasn't going to happen. And that if things was going to be restored, he was going to have to be the one that got his life in a right condition. You know when things will change for you? Uh, when you let go of that anger, when you let go of that pride, when you let go of that stubbornness, when you recognize that things ain't going to get no better, God ain't going to apologize because he went wrong in the first place. It was you that was wrong. And you'll go back to where you dropped the ark of God and pick it up and move on. I see his repentance. I see his reverence, verse 13. The Bible says it was so that when they had that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. Now, I want to stop right here. Some of you all get put out with me sometimes because you think I'm long-winded. Some of that same crowd gets long-winded, thinks I'm getting long-winded, talks about when, they's, when in, in, in the old times they'd go to church all day. Amen. Yeah. But whatever, I'm just saying. Some of you all think I get long-winded. How would you feel if after about six words I just stopped and said, all right, we're going to sacrifice now? <laughs> Don't you imagine they're sitting there and they're going, all right, we're ready to go. One, two, three, four, five, six. All right, everybody stop and unload. We're going to have a sacrifice. What's the difference in what David's doing here? Before he did it with revelry, but now he's doing it with reverence. Before it was all about making a show of himself, but now it's about pleasing the Lord. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, I've done it my way, and that's what got me here. 
I want to do it differently this time. I want to do it God's way. I want to do it with God's blessing. I really think that he would move that ark and I think he was waiting to see if God would strike down the Kohathites. I think he was waiting to see if God would strike him down. I think he was waiting for the fire of God to fall from heaven. And when that did not happen, he just stopped and with gratitude in his heart said, Praise the Lord, he's forgiven me of what I did. Can I say in your life and in my life, if we want to get things right, we're going to have to do it God's way. We're going to have to do it God's way. I see his reverence. Then I see his rejoicing. Verse 14, Baptists have a problem with this. I don't. And I am a Baptist, amen. But I'm not a Baptist. I'm a Baptist. So I don't have a problem with it. The Baptists have a problem with this. Verse 14 says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. David girded was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. I see his rejoicing. He just gets beside himself. You know what happened? When he got it right, his joy returned. You know when he wasn't dancing? When the ark of God was sitting down at Obed-Edom's house. You know, you say, preacher, I just want to have my joy back. Well, find out what stole it from you. Find out where you lost it. Find out where you left it. Go back there and get things right. When he gets things right, man, he begins to rejoice before the Lord. I see his rejoicing. Then I see his restoration. Verse 17 says this, They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. I see two things he was restored in. One, I see he was restored in his worship. He hadn't been worshiping those three months. Preacher, how do you know that? Well, because the tabernacle was not in a right situation. In fact, uh, because he was the father of the house of Israel at that time and because he wasn't right, wasn't nobody in the house of Israel worshiping. And I will say this, Daddy. Uh, in our lives, if we're, if we're not right, how are we going to expect our family to be right? If we're not right, how are we going to expect them to be right? If we're not worshiping, how are we going to expect them to worship? If we're not walking right, how are we going to expect them to walk right? Had nobody been worshiping, but now things have been sitting in the right place. So what does David do? He goes in and offers burnt offerings and peace offerings. Hey, by the way, those burnt offerings, the expiation of sin, the peace offerings, the performance of worship, these were personal offerings that he was offering for himself. He wasn't going in and presuming the place of the priest like Uzziah the king did many years later. Instead, he was coming as a personal worshiper, bringing his offerings before God. He got his own walk with God right and then everybody else got their walk with God right. I will tell you, your walk with God won't be right until that sin is dealt with. He was restored in his worship. Then he was restored in his witness. I like this. Verse 18, As soon as David had made an end of offering, burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as to the men, to everyone a cake of cornbread and a good piece of fried chicken, and a flagon of sweet tea. So all the people departed, every one, to his house. He wasn't doing that before. Why wasn't he doing it before? Because he wasn't right with the Lord. Now all of a sudden he can rejoice in the Lord. Now all of a sudden he can be, he can, he can have a spirit of liberality uh, with the people. What happened? God restored him in his witness. You think there was anybody there that day that didn't remember the death of Uzzah? You think there was anybody there that day that cared once they got their cornbread and their fried chicken and their sweet tea? What happened? God restored him and restored his testimony. We can't fix everything about our our wrecked testimony. Thank God we can fix some things. We can't make it like it never happened. But we can rejoice that God fixed it even though it did happen. 
I see his his uh, restoration. And then finally, and I'm done, I'm not even going to read it except verse 16. The Bible says this, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. By the way, the Bible describes her as being barren from this day forward. I want to be very clear. I'm using this figuratively in a spiritual sense. But can I say this? Despising the worship of, of God makes us spiritually barren in our life. It makes us spiritually barren in our life. And listen, people that ain't right with God, they despise it when people that are right with God enjoy being right with God. And, and, and she looked out the window and she despised him. And I said, I wasn't going to read it, but I lied. Forgive me. Verse 20, David returned to bless his household. To bless his household. It's hard to bless your household until you get things right. But now he goes to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and I can hear her snotty little voice when she says this, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself. And by the way, the Bible says he's wearing a linen ephod. Her problem was not was not nudity. Her problem was indignity. Her problem was not he was lewd. Her problem was he was low. Her, her problem was not that, 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 that he, he was wicked and ungodly and, and immodest. Her problem was that he had abased himself and worshipped just like somebody that just knew God. She had a problem with that. She said, you took your crown off. Why'd you do that? Well, because the Lord's the King of Kings. You took your robe off. Why'd you do that? Because I need to be robed in His righteousness. Hey, you took your shoes off. Why'd you do that? Because I was standing on holy ground. David, why'd you worship God like that? Because He's worthy of it. Because He's worthy of it. She says, you uncovered yourself uh, today in the eyes of the handmaids of His servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. And David, I like what he says. David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I wasn't doing it for you. He said, I wasn't trying to impress you. He says, it was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father. You see that little dig. That's good. Here's some marital counseling. If you're going to, if you're going to stick a knife in, you better twist it. All right. That's just good marital counseling. If you're going to hit him, you, I, mm. <laughs> which chose me before thy father and before all his house, meaning all your house. <laughs> to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. He said, I'm just going to enjoy my salvation. I'm just going to enjoy it. He says, and if you think that's bad, he said, I will yet be more vile than thus. <laughs> sometimes, man, sometimes people come to church here and, and, and they'll, they'll talk to me afterwards. And we, it don't always get on, but sometimes it does. And sometimes they'll come to us and we'll have had like an okay service. And they'll be like, preacher, boy, I mean, I tell you, that was something. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure you can handle us full octane. I'm not sure you can really, when things really get wild, David says, you think that's bad? He said, I will be more vile than thus and will base in mine own sight. And of the maidservants which I have spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Here's here's the point, and I'm done. She's upset that he's got right. He don't care. She's mad that he got right. He says, you're just going to have to be mad. I see his resolve. You know, here's the truth. There's going to be people despise you when you get right. It's all right. Go ahead and let them despise you. There's going to be people that don't like it when you get right. And, and, and make no mistake, she was not she was not arrogant over the fact that he had made a mistake. She was spiteful over the fact that he was getting it right. And there's going to be people despise you for getting it right. Well, I do, preacher. Just go ahead and get it right. Go ahead and be right. I'd, I'd rather be right with God and wrong with them than the alternative. And so he makes his mind up. 
if it hair lips everyone, if it upsets anyone, and I don't know, I'm going to bet that the bed was a little cold that night. But he said, oh, well, whatever it takes for me to be right with God, that's what I'll do. We shouldn't be snotty. We shouldn't be arrogant. We shouldn't be cough, sticker, mean-spirited. But I'll tell you this, you better make your mind up that God's opinion matters more than anything else. You won't get right till you do. But hey, thank God, even if we've gotten it wrong, we can get it right this morning. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I want to give you an opportunity to come and, and to speak with the Lord this morning. If God has dealt with you about some matter in your life, there's no shame in that. The shame would be that if he dealt with us and we refused to get it right, that would be shameful. Say, preacher, what will people think? Oh, you mean those Michaels? Don't worry about what they think. Preacher, what will people think? Oh, you mean those people that stare out the window and sneer at us? Don't worry about what they think. Just go ahead and get it right with God. Trust me, you'll be the better for it. You'll be the more joyful for it. Preacher, I'm just unhappy. Well, the Lord doesn't make us unhappy. There are bad things happen in the life of faithful servants of God, but we can have the joy of the Lord. If God's dealt with you this morning, why don't you meet Him here in this altar? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.